0: This morning's text is found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. I encourage you to follow along with me in your Bibles, or in the pew Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, lo, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only.
1: Today we begin a new series of Sunday morning messages that Lord willing will take us to Easter April 19 and so the first thing I'd like to do is explain to you how I was moved to develop this series one of the texts that figures most largely into my understanding of what happens or should happen in preaching is 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 in fact, you might want to turn there with me and keep your finger in today's text. We'll be back to it in a few minutes. But this is very important for understanding how I conceive of the minister's task and how I craft my own plans for preaching. And I think it would be helpful for you to know. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, or your version might say, reflecting the glory of the Lord. In, in either case, I think it would be a reflection as a result of, of beholding as the face is unveiled. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit? In other words, one of the ways that God has chosen by which He will transform us from one degree of glory to another into His likeness is through our looking at His glory. You see that? We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed. So the way to become more and more like Jesus is to behold the glory of the Lord more and more. Or the way to become more and more like God and develop into His image is to behold God or to fix your gaze upon God. And that's very natural, isn't it? We hum the tunes that we hear. We pick up the accents of the vicinity in which we grew up. We pick up the mannerisms and the uh, courtesies of our parents. There's nothing mysterious about this. You always tend to become like the people you admire. If teenagers fix their hair like the stars they admire most, Christians will fix their character like the God they admire most. And so the way to become like Christ, as this text says, is to lift the veil and to behold the glory of the Lord. Now, what's the lesson for preaching in that? The lesson for preaching is that the fundamental task of the preacher who aims to transform his people into the likeness of Christ is to portray the glory of God. Very simple. My primary job in preaching is to depict or display the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. I don't think this is an artificial or merely intellectual construction taken out of a text. It's the way most of us, I know for myself I speak anyway, the way most of us have made any advancement in sanctification at all. To the degree in my own life that Christ has been sharply seen in His glory, or God in His character and power and attributes have been clearly And sharply portrayed in my own heart's eye, to that degree have I been drawn out to be like Him and to love, to imitate Him and to long to conform to Him. And to the degree that Christ and God have been hazy in my eyes, and I have no clear and distinct picture of their wonder and their glory, it's just kind of a mush in the eye of my imagination, to that degree have the very distinct glories and pleasures of the world begun to lure me away to their fleeting pleasures and follies. There is a fundamental conflict going on in every human soul, and it is between two glories... The glory of God with its eternal pleasures and the glory of the world with its fleeting pleasures. And the only way to become more and more like God is to keep the glory of God and Christ clear and lucid and shining before the the eyes of your heart. And so the task of a preacher is to help you in that. And preaching is fundamentally a portrayal of the glories of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the question I pose to myself every time a new series rolls around that has to be planned is, now, from what angle shall I come at the glory of God this time? Is there any new or fresh way that I can get at the wonders and splendors of God in Christ so I went away for a retreat, and many of you knew this and, and prayed for me two weeks ago, and I appreciate that very much. And I do believe the Lord answered our prayers, and here's what happened. I was meditating and reading again in the book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man by Henry Scougal, and I read a quotation. It goes like this. It struck me as very true and very powerful. He said, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. And I agree with that, and I think that is a profound observation. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. Now, he was talking about men and women. And it's true. But I think it's also true for God. The worth and excellency of God's soul will be measured by the object of his love. And so I spent about a day and a half, or most of two days, using my concordance and looking up every place I could find in the whole Bible where it said God loved something, delighted in something, had pleasure in something, enjoyed something, rejoiced in something, and wrote them all down. And meditated on those texts until they distilled down into 13 messages, which I'm going to call the pleasures of God. So that every message from now through Easter will say, the pleasure of God in something. And you can see now the rationale behind this choice. Very simple. If I can succeed in pointing to those realities in which God delights most fully, I will be able to display, Lord willing, the excellency and the worth of God's own soul. And if I can display the excellency and worth of His soul, you will behold His glory. And if you behold His glory... 2 Corinthians 3.18 says you will be changed from one degree of glory to another into his likeness. And if you are changed into his likeness, you will make a life-changing, society-changing impact upon this city and upon the frontiers. And there may yet be a revival of love and joy and power in this church and in this city. Now, do you understand what we're up to? Does it make sense? I hope so. So today's message goes back to the beginning. It goes back as far as I'm able to go in my little human mind to where the delight of God began and the object in which it began. And I want to develop this in five affirmations. Affirmation number one is this. God has pleasure in His Son. God has pleasure in His Son. Kenny read for us the text from which I take my starting point. Peter, James, and John were granted the unspeakable privilege of going with Jesus up on the mount where He was transfigured, which is a big fancy word for something simply unutterable that happened. Peter tells us about it in his second letter. He says that God came and glorified the Son. God came, and it says, Christ's face shone like the sun now today it's a little hazy outside but on one of these glorious clear days better in the summertime when the sun has gotten back up where it belongs here instead of hanging way down there in Texas try just for a half second to look at it no longer than that because you'll be blinded in five seconds by the sun The face of our Lord Jesus shone like the sun at noonday, and they fell on their faces. And then his clothes became so white that they were beyond description, and they grasped for words to say. What, what, What was the meaning of that? The meaning was simply, I want to show you that what you know and see in this Jesus is far more than what you know and see in this Jesus. If you could see the Jesus that really is, the Jesus that will one day come in His glory, you would be on your face. So it was the Father's depiction of the glory of His Son that He has had from all eternity. And then He comes in a cloud and He says two things. This is My loved Son. I love this person. I love this person. Secondly, in whom I am well pleased. I have pleasure in this person. I delight in this person. And those aren't really two separate things. Because the love that God has for the Son is not a sacrificial, self-denying love. There's not a single sin or imperfection in Jesus Christ that God has to overcome in order to love him. God loves him with 100% pure vintage pleasure and delight. So God takes pleasure in his son. Now, a misunderstanding could easily come here, and that leads us to affirmation number two. The misunderstanding would be this. Somebody could say, well, sure, God delights in his son. He has chosen this man because he has searched the world over and found for himself a man who has risen to the top like cream in milk. And he has extolled the superior holiness and virtue of this man who stands apart from all other men because of the virtue he has achieved. And he has chosen him and taken delight in him. That's what it says in Isaiah 42, 1. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, in whom my soul delights. He just picked him out from all the other men on the earth as one who is a cut above the rest. And now he's going to use him for his saving purposes. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And therefore, affirmation number two. The Son of God has the fullness of deity. The Son of God has the fullness of deity. And I take this from Colossians chapter 2, if you want to follow with me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul comes at the Son from an angle totally different from this idea that God sort of scoured the world over until he found a man who had risen to the top like cream and put his favor upon him and designated him or adopted him as his son. That's not the case, according to the witness of Scripture, And here's one of the clearest testimonies to that fact. Colossians 2.9 says, In Him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, the Son was not merely chosen as a man and extolled for His superior holiness or virtue. He was a person in whom God caused the fullness of deity to dwell. And then if you're with me in Colossians, look back at chapter 1, verse 19, and this is related to the pleasure of God. There it says, in him, all the fullness of deity, understand, was pleased to dwell. Or as some of your versions say, and probably not a bad translation, God was pleased to To have the fullness of his deity, dwell in this person, Jesus Christ. So God didn't go out and look for a person who had distinguished himself as holy and virtuous and loving, and then adopt him as his son and use him for his saving purposes. That is altogether a wrong conception. Rather, God has been pleased It has been his pleasure and his delight to invest Jesus Christ with deity. And this happened at the conception of Jesus in the virgin womb of Mary. So that a God-man emerged, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, both human and divine. Now here again a mistake could emerge. Which leads us to a third affirmation. Someone could say, sure, all right. He didn't look the world over to find a man who had risen above the rest and distinguished himself for his virtue and then was thus adopted into God's family and used for his saving purposes. Rather, he made a man to be useful. He he created a person so that he could use him. And that would be wrong. And so we're led to a third affirmation, namely, the Son in whom God delights is the eternal image and reflection of God, and is God Himself. Now, that's a longer one. Let me repeat it. I'll just leave out that middle phrase. The Son of God is the eternal image and reflection of God, and thus is God Himself. Now, that's going to take some unfolding and some examination to see why and if, how that's true. Right here in Colossians, if you're still here with me, you can see in chapter 1, verse 15, the first declaration to this effect. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, don't let that little phrase throw you like it does the Jehovah's Witnesses. That does not mean that he is part of creation, which they say. The little word of, of creation, could mean that, like block of wood. But parent of Karsten doesn't mean I'm part of Karsten. The word of is ambiguous. How do you decide what this little word of means there? Well, just by reading the next clause. Clause. For, he was the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created. Now you know that the meaning of firstborn of all creation means having the status of dignity and honor as son over all creation. For he is the creator of all things and is not himself part of creation. But the main thing I want you to see in verse 15 is simply... That as one who created all, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to call the Son the image of God? Well, before I unpack it a little bit, let me gather together some other phrases and designations that mean almost the same thing. First, you don't need to look these up, I'll just read a couple here quickly. Hebrews 1.3. 1 verse 3, he reflects the glory of God, bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power. I love these statements. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He wakes up in the morning, so to speak, and says, stay in being, world, and it stays in being. He says, let the molecules of John Piper's body stay John Piper and not become... Joe Blow and they stay there so that I have being from day to day. But that's not the point. The point is he reflects the glory of God and he bears the very imprint or stamp of his essence or his nature. So there's one parallel. Here's another one. Philippians chapter two, verse six, a very familiar text which says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped and held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. All right, now let's put all this together. We're told that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the reflection of God's glory, that he bears the very stamp and imprint of God's nature and essence, that he is in the form of God's being, that he is equal with God. And therefore, it shouldn't be the least surprising when we read in the writing of the apostle who saw him on the mount, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so it would be totally mistaken, wouldn't it, to say that God made the Son. Or that God created the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, maybe we can get an ep- An idea, a better idea of what it means that he's in the image and reflection and form and stamp of God. What does this mean? And here I I freely admit we're treading right up to the brink of ineffability or mystery. And yet I personally have the conviction that we often wave the checkered flag of mystery too quickly and deny ourselves glimpses of glory that are nourishing for our faith. And so let me venture with you perhaps a little beyond where you typically go. One of the realities of God that I love to meditate on is the fact that He exists. This is the most baffling of all realities. Nothing compares... To the thought that once upon a time, a trillion, 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 trillion years ago, God was a trillion, 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 infinite number of years old. And he never had a beginning. You know, you tell a little child, there has always been God. The first thing the child will say is, where did he come from? Or, who made God? That's such a good question. And the fact that there's no answer is is the most st- stunning reality that he was who he is and has always been that forever and ever he is absolute reality you will reckon with god there is nothing but god it just it just causes people who don't believe in God, who want to rebel against God, to appear in the most ant-like absurdity. God is! And there isn't any discussion of who He is because He wasn't made or reared or trained or nurtured by anything or anybody ever. God has been who He is in all the complexity of His character forever. That's reality. Period. I just love to think about that because my faith just soars because nothing commends it to my reason like that should be so. Nothing else. To me, it is far more absurd to guess that what has existed from eternity is some blob or gas than that it should be person given the reality of human personhood and our sense of conscience and accountability. There is no argument when you go back to infinity to say that reality should be one thing and not another thing. It's just there. God. Now, given that reality, the Bible tells us That from all eternity, there has been in God an infinitely perfect image of himself. An infinitely perfect reflection of his glory. An infinitely perfect imprint or stamp of his nature. An infinitely perfect form of his being. And one who is absolutely equal and is therefore God. Now, let me try a conception on you. This is a mental, a human mental conception that attempts to conceive of the Trinity. From all eternity, God has been self conscious. Which is just another way of saying that from all eternity, God has beheld the purity, perfection, and infiniteness of his own perfections reflected in an image that he has of, him own, of his own self. Or a reflection of his glory, or the imprint of his nature, or the form of his being, and his Image that he has of himself in his own mind is so complete so real so personal so full that it stands forth as God reduplicated the Son co-equal co-eternal so that it is totally wrong to think of the Son as being created or made rather he is begotten from all eternity, imaged forth from all eternity, very God of very God, not made. And therefore, affirmation number four is the pleasure of God in His Son... Is pleasure in himself. The pleasure that God has in his son is the pleasure that he has. In himself, because the Son is His very image, the reflection of His glory, the stamp and imprint of His very nature, the form of His being, wholly equal, co eternal, very God of very God. When He says, This is my beloved Son, He means, I love my own perfections reflected back to me in the Son. And I delight and find pleasure in the Son as He reflects back to me the perfections of my own nature. The fourth affirmation is the pleasure that God has in his only begotten son is the pleasure that he has in himself. And I know from years of trying to make this plain to people that the first reaction is, then he's vain. He's the victim of vanity and conceitedness and smugness and selfishness. And the reason is very plain for why that response would be there. Because if you stood in front of a mirror and delighted most fully in your own image, you'd be vain and you'd be conceited and smug. Why? Why? Because you were made for something better, nobler, bigger and greater. Namely what? with unveiled face to behold the glory of God and be changed from one degree of glory to another into His likeness. If you were to stand in front of a mirror and take full and perfect delight in what you saw in your own image, you would belittle and insult and injure the infinitely worthy Image of God in His Son who was designed for your joy. You would be an idolater. Well, now I just ask you, how are you going to keep God from being an idolater? How are you going to keep God from insulting the worth of what is infinitely worthy? There is only one answer. You must affirm that God infinitely, ultimately, and perfectly delights in Himself above all things. This is the essence of righteousness. To set the full energetic affection of the heart on what is truly and infinitely valuable is the meaning of righteousness. If you put your whole affection onto a worthless thing, you're unrighteous. You're a sinner. But if you put your full and wholehearted affection and delight and pleasure On what is fully delightful, fully worthy, fully excellent, you're righteous. That's why it says in Psalm 23, Lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. God gets glory when we delight in the righteous delight of His Son. And therefore, the righteousness of God is His unswerving, Delight and allegiance to his own value, to his own worth and his own glory. If for one little millisecond God were to act contrary to the highest regard that he has for his own glory reflected in his son, he would be unrighteous and the universe would collapse. In order to sustain this world in being and to be God, He must delight in what is most delightful, most worthy, most excellent, most glorious. Namely, God! He is the center of His affections. And therein lies the greatest obstacle to our salvation. For how in the world, in heaven, in the universe will He ever be able to set His affections upon sinners like us and be righteous? And therein lies the very foundation of our salvation. For if it were not for the infinite regard that the Father has for the Son, there would be no hope that we, by hiding in the Son could ever be acceptable to a righteous and holy God. Now, I know this is heavy. And I just want to say as we close, this is just the beginning. Because my deep conviction is that the arcing, surging, infinitely energetic love between the Father and the Son is the fountain which spills over in everything you see and enjoy. We'll talk about creation. We'll talk about redemption. But here's the beginning. Here's the fountain of it all. If God did not infinitely and fully delight in His own worth reflected in the image of Himself in the face of His Son, there would be no bounty, there would be no joy, there would be no fountain from which has spilled out everything you have and from which our redemption comes. Which leads us to the final brief affirmation and application. Namely, if Henry Skugel is right, that you can measure the worth and excellency of a soul by that in which it delights then now we can say, fifthly, God is the most excellent and worthy of all beings. God is the most excellent and worthy of all beings. Why? Because He delights infinitely in the most excellent and worthy of all beings. Himself, in the image of His Son. Oh, how happy is God for all eternity. He is not the God of Islam. And oh, here is a great means for missions. He is not the solitary ego of the God of Islam. There is no happiness and no communion, no exuberant joy in God, in God, in the God of Islam. There must be multiplicity in God for there to be love in God and love is the exuberance of the energy of joy in God which spills over in every other benefit we have and therefore I close with this simple admonition repent of putting yourself at the center of God's affections and turn away from all trivial resentments in life and all paltry and petty concerns and all silly pursuits and give yourself to beholding and gazing upon the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because if you do, you will be changed from one degree of glory to another into the image of God. And his purpose for the universe will be fulfilled. That his son be exalted in a family who have been changed into his image, giving him glory forever and ever and ever.